I'd like you to take a look with me at Psalm 74, verse 9. I've been in a series called Our Signs. This is the seventh in the series. And there are a number of signs of the church that appear throughout the book of Acts. And we're just going through those signs and identifying what they are. But Psalm 74, verse 9 talks about the signs of God's people in the Old Testament and how that when Israel backslid and began to drift away from God, those wonderful supernatural signs that indicated God's presence, they began to lift. And Israel was just another nation just like all the rest of them. And those supernatural signs like the parting of the Red Sea and the giving of manna and the cloud of glory and the pillar of fire and the... Uh, wonderful miracles that took place among them and the, how the prophets would deliver them from their enemies and all these different wonderful signs begin to stop. And um, the psalmist cries out as he sees this decline and he says, Psalm 74 verse 9, we do not see our signs. There's no longer any prophet and there's none among us who knows how long. How long is this dry period going to go on? Where we're, where we're not aware of God's presence, where it's obvious that he's not with us. So the absence of those signs was indication that they were not walking with God as they were supposed to. However, after the resurrection of the Messiah, Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit enters the world on the day of Pentecost and the New Testament church was born and the signs were back and then some that they had never seen, tremendous signs, showed up that very day when the Holy Ghost fell in the upper room. And uh, the next few days afterwards, those signs began to appear. But what was different is the signs began to manifest. Literally, it looked as though they were coming out of the lives of the people. For example, the scripture says how that Peter walking through the streets, his shadow would, over, over, his shadow would fall over sick people. And they were getting healed, and so people were starting to bring paralyzed and sick people out, lay them <clears throat> in the sidewalk and in the street where Peter was going to walk. I mean, amazing miracles. Paul is walking up uh, to the gate of the temple through the door, and there's a lame man begging for money. He says, silver and gold have I none, but such as I have, I give to you. In the name of Jesus, rise and walk. And he was healed. And so you could see that the signs and wonders of the New Testament were evidently coming out of the believers. And on several occasions throughout the book of Acts, particularly when they were in Gentile cities where people really didn't know about God, they tried to worship Paul and worship uh, 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 Barnabas and Silas when, uh, when miracles would take place because the miracles were flowing out of the believers. This was totally new, but these are the signs of the church, and they do flow out of us although we know they don't originate with us. They are the work of the Holy Spirit, but it's the Holy Spirit in us. So as long as the church is filled with people that are filled with God, the signs of the church will manifest. But what does it mean when the church is full of people that aren't full of God? I didn't say that aren't filled with faith in God or aren't filled with sincere love for the Lord, but they're not filled with God, filled with the power of the Holy Spirit like they were in the book of Acts. You see Christians and you hear about their faith and you hear the gospel, but you don't see the signs. There's no signs anymore. So we really could say today, where are our signs? 
And 1 Peter says in chapter 2, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for God's own possession. So the whole plan is not just that people get saved, but that they become the house of God. It's no longer that God comes down in a tabernacle like the Old Testament. We are that tabernacle. We are that house. And um, the signs say God is in the house. Hallelujah. So it says, you are a people for God's own possession, Peter went on to say, so that you should show forth the excellencies, the power, the glory of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. So every Christian should be showing forth those signs throughout their lifetime, different ones and, and however God wants to move, he, we should be seeking him to move through us. So there is no evidence in the scriptures that God ever intended his heaven-born, spirit-connected church to be surrendered to an earthly institution. Um, we are called to be more than signs of our faith. We're called to be signs of what God is doing, not just what we believe to be true. Which brings us to the 11th sign in this series, and that is the sign of the fear of the Lord. Everyone say, the fear of the Lord. Acts chapter 9 says in verse 31, Then had the churches rest throughout all Judea and Galilee and Samaria, and were edified, and walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they multiplied. Walking in the fear of the Lord, and in the comfort of the Holy Spirit, they multiplied. The most outstanding proof that those early Christians really knew God, knew Him, and not just knew about Him, was how they walked in the fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the greatest indication that you truly know God. Not just know the God of the book, but you know Him. The true fear of the Lord is, is really probably a... a uh, a good way to describe it, it is exceeding reverence. Exceeding reverence. That's what the fear of the Lord is. It's not being afraid of God. It is being in intense awe and reverence of the Lord. And nobody can truly be in that kind of fear of the Lord without truly knowing Him. Hallelujah. So there are a lot of people who are afraid of facing God, but they don't have the fear of the Lord. Psalm 19 says the fear of the Lord is clean. And the fear of the Lord, the psalm says, brings gladness to our hearts. So the kind of fear that people think of when they hear fear of the Lord is obviously not what the fear of the Lord is about. It is exceeding reverence. So it, it's not being driven by fear of God's punishment but being moved by the awe of his love and the fear of missing his blessings. If we're afraid of anything, I'm afraid of missing the blessing of God. I want to keep up with Jesus. I want to be in prayer. I want to be in fellowship with God because I don't want to go without what the Lord has for me. So that, that awe and fear is because I've met him and I know him. And when I get up from praying, I am so full of, of the sense of his presence that I'm cautious to not do anything 
that's going to take me out of that presence where I know His blessings abide. Amen? I have a definition for the fear of the Lord that I think is very practical. See if you don't agree. It's they took God seriously. When it says they walked in the fear of the Lord, I think it could be said they took God seriously. It's amazing how many churches don't take God seriously. How many Christians don't take God seriously. Now, if you approach this subject on the standpoint of their theology or their faith, they become very offended. You are, are you questioning my faith? It's almost one of the worst things in society you can do is to question a person's faith. But God questions our faith because when he questions our faith, he's not questioning what you believe in. He's questioning the quality of your relationship. Your faith isn't what you believe in. Your faith is what you're doing. It's what your life is following. That's your faith. And so the fear of the Lord doesn't have to do with what you believe in. The fear of the Lord has to do with are you truly walking in your faith, in the, in the true faith of God. That's taking God seriously. Could there be a more practical definition for the fear of the Lord? When you take God seriously, you can't avoid Him or ignore His commandments. You just simply can't. When you take God seriously... The sign of the fear of the Lord assures that Jesus will show up in what you choose and in what you act. When you walk in the fear of the Lord, you'll be certain to act the way Jesus wants you to act. Choose what he wants you to choose. And the unsaved people of the world, they could tell. They could tell the Christians really knew God. They could see it. They could see those people, it's not just they know about God or they've got a new doctrine. These people have got a connection with God and the people of the world could see it because they could see the wisdom of God in how they were walking. Remember the scripture says that, uh, that the churches were walking in the fear of the Lord and in the comfort of the Holy Ghost and thus were multiplied. They were multiplying because people was, were seeing the wisdom of God walked out in the choices and decisions that the people were making as they were walking. You know, Proverbs 10 and, or 9 and 10, we know that scripture that says, the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. You're not wise because you know a bunch of facts. In fact, you're really not wise until every fact you know and everything that you're intelligent about and smart about begins with the fear of the Lord. Every subject begins with the fear of the Lord. When you think about the cosmos and the universe and creation, when you think about society and, and uh, when you think about <clears throat> uh, culture, when you think about how families should run, when you think about relationships, your beginning point your beginning thought is the fear of the Lord because you see everything in life. You see everything in the known reality as emanating from God. And so you don't know anything until you know that that particular subject has its beginning in God. You don't know that subject because you go back to your days in college and you say, my professor told me, da, da, da. You don't know anything 
if you're hanging it on what your professor told you, you need to trace everything you know back to what God has said in His Word and what God's done, and then you'll have wisdom. And if what the professor said lines up with the fear of the Lord, then good, keep it. If not, well, I hope your degree gets you a better, better pay for your work, but it's not doing you much good in life. And so <clears throat> the beginning of wisdom is to fear the Lord. In other words, again, I like to put things in simple terms because then people can grab it and run with it. Here's a phrase that I think when you walk out and you're having lunch, so you'll think, when he said that, that, that stuck with me. And so, in other words, knowing when you will know God seriously when you take God seriously. You will know God seriously when you take God seriously. There are a lot of people that seriously know a lot of stuff about God, but they don't take God seriously. So a lot of what they know has no power to it. But we need Christians today who are walking in the fear of the Lord because they are taking God seriously. When they say they know something from God, God himself is in what they know. And when they say it, people see the wisdom of God in how they walk. Amen? So the fear of the Lord isn't a belief. It's a walk. The scripture says, as we, as we already pointed out, that walking in the fear of the Lord and the comfort of the Holy Spirit, the churches were multiplied through the fear of the Lord. Those early Christians were able to continue to walk with Jesus even though he had left physically. So they walked with him for three and a half years and then he resurrected after he died. But they continued to walk with him actually more intimately and more close through the fear of the Lord. The reverence, the awe of God because the Holy Spirit. If you don't have the Holy Spirit living within you as a believer, that's what makes you to be born again is the Holy Spirit. You can't possibly have the fear of the Lord. You can have some kind of reverence about the concept of God, but the true fear of the Lord radiates from the Holy Spirit. And so you can tell when people have the fear of the Lord, they're tender-hearted towards, the, towards God. They're tender-hearted to the, towards the Holy Spirit. And so the, through the fear of the Lord, early Christians were able to continue walking with Jesus and the Holy Spirit was giving them comfort and comforting them. So the churches were multiplied. The believers were comforted as they walked in the fear of the Lord. That intimate relationship that they continued to have with Jesus is called the fear of the Lord, and it's one of the most powerful signs of the church. And every one of us have its potential within us. We should stir it up, and all you need to do is take God seriously. Maybe tomorrow during your devotional, you can just kind of, Introduce that fresh thought into your morning prayer. Lord, help me to take you more seriously than I ever have before and get ready to experience the fear of the Lord. Sign number 12. We're going to share one other sign this morning. And it is the sign 
of unity. The sign of unity. Right there in Acts chapter 2 when the Holy Spirit fell in the upper room on the day of Pentecost, in the very first verse it says, And when the day of Pentecost was fully come, they were all with one accord in one place. They weren't just all in one place. They were all with one accord. They were not just all in one room. They were all in one state of mind, one thought, one heart desire, one emotional focus. They're, they were sharing a single heart together. Those heartbeats all lined up. The thoughts all lined up. When it says they were in one accord, I don't want you to trivialize or minimize that. It's not like today what we think one accord is. If we, if we Baptists all get together, we know what we all believe about Baptist doctrine. If we Pentecostals get together, we know what we all believe. We Catholics get together. That, for sure, is unity on some level. But it's not the one accord that brought the Holy Ghost on the day of Pentecost. They worked at coming into that one accord. But really, truly, the sign of unity is supernatural and it comes from God. That unity fell upon them. Hallelujah. They got together and they sought God, and as they sought the Lord together, it brought them into alignment together, and then that spirit of unity filled them. And the sign of unity was, was one of the birth signs of the church in Acts, and it was present the moment the Holy Spirit fell. And at the very end of that second chapter in Acts, it's, it's, as it's describing that, that first day, of the church and the next few days afterwards it says and they continued daily with one accord so when they left the upper room they left lockstep in one accord it says they continuing daily with one accord in the temple and breaking of bread from house to house they did eat their food with gladness and singleness of heart and so you could see that the unity really referred to as one accord was emanating from Jesus. And when they got into that unity, they got with Jesus. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. The sign of unity. The sign of unity is the heart of the resurrection beating in believers who agree that Jesus' life and that serving him is living. So we believe that Jesus is life. We believe that serving him is truly living. And when our heartbeat is in alignment with those two statements, and it beats together, that sign of unity will begin to manifest, and it'll bring its special powers and grace and special blessing upon us. The sign of unity was manifesting from inside out and not from outside in. And that's a very important point that I'm going to spend a few minutes sharing with you about because the world has an idea of what unity is. And I want to share with you that this is the sign of unity. This is not the project of unity that the world always works on. we got to get together. We, we, need, to, we need to hammer this out. It's good to get together, and there are many things in life we need to work at hammering out.
But that's not the sign of unity. You can hammer it out and you can get together and you won't have the sign of unity. This sign of unity flowed from within them to the outside, not from the outside through effort into them. The sign of unity is an impartation. It's not an achievement. It manifested as a trait of the new creation, not as a result of community organizing. One of the saddest things that I think I've ever seen in, in the short life that I've spent with the Lord is how men of God and churches that bear the name of Jesus have given up the true sign of unity in favor of community organizing of jumping on the bandwagon of organizing community issues and we got to bring people together as though if we bring people together, we're doing God's work. I think only in the smallest way could it be said that we're doing God's work because we bring people together. You see, when you're in Christ, you're already together. You're together with people you've never even met. There is a unity that exists, and then there's a unity that is built. And it's, it's terrible, it's a tragedy that the church has forsaken and given up the unity that exists in the spirit realm for the unity that's built and the unity that's created. Should we not participate in those efforts? I didn't say that. But those efforts are not the sign of unity that the Bible's talking about. Look at the characteristics of the sign of unity. It says they were continuing daily with one accord in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, ate their meat with gladness and singleness of heart. And the first thing that I notice is there was no denominational spirit among them. The Christians had not yet split into separate groups that accommodated their different opinions, which today we have and we call them denominations. And the Bible says, therefore, signs and wonders were on display. The Bible says they were in one accord and God worked signs and wonders among them. We need to, we need to read in the Bible what's being said that when they were in one accord, the Holy Spirit was able to flow out of the sign of unity and work miracles. I think there's Christians sometimes that have got people in their churches that are just praying and you know, seeking God fasting for, for the Lord to demonstrate His power in signs and wonders and miracles. And we don't see it happening, not as we read about it in the book of Acts, because we don't connect it with the sign of unity. The Bible says how good and pleasant it is when brethren dwell together in unity. It's like the oil that came from above and, and went down to the very bottom. It says, for there, where? In the place under the sign of unity, the Lord has commanded the blessing. You don't have to beg God to, to heal and to deliver when you are there under the sign of unity. The Lord's commanded the blessing. There is an order, a standing order from heaven. Let the blessings of God roll. Jesus has already risen above the enemy. He has already taken his position in victory over sickness and disease and over demonic oppression. 
He doesn't have to create a victory over those things. That victory already exists. So why do those victories not just simply flow into every church, into every group of believers? Because they have broken away from the unity of gathering together where there is a commanded blessing. And oftentimes, when they do try to cobble together and manufacture a unity, it's a manufactured unity because it's all based on people having to decide, well, whose opinions and whose issues gets to run this thing? Because they don't understand the unity doesn't have anything to do with men's opinions or issues. It has to do with Jesus and His Lordship. And at the altar of Jesus and His Lordship, every idiosyncrasy and opinion gets laid out and surrendered. Can you say amen? So there was no denominational spirit that had, would, had been able to yet come into the church and, and separate people into the groups so they felt more comfortable being with people that thought the way they thought. Another thing that I noticed was that uh, they operated under God's membership drive. There didn't seem to be a big membership drive going on, and yet thousands daily would, would be added and it was like, how was that happening? How was that happening? Because God's membership drive happens when you follow the things he tells you and I to follow. And living under the sign of unity is one of them. Remember, it says that they continued in one accord and uh, that the Bible says that as they continued in one accord, the unbelievers did not dare join themselves to them. It says, but they held them in high honor. Why was that? They respected the wisdom of God they saw among them. Under that unity, they saw something that the, that the religious order wasn't able to create. They saw something that even the, the, air, the seemingly airtight authority of the Roman government wasn't able to create. Man cannot create this unity. It exists under the banner of Jesus. It flows with the love of God. It's full of grace and freedom, but you can't control it. You can't manufacture it. You can just join it or not join it, submit to it or not submit to it. And the Bible says the people that did not get saved stood back and honored them in awe but they didn't dare join them. And then the very next phrase says, more and more believers in the Lord were added to their churches, crowds of both men and women. So they were under God's membership drive. The spirit of the sign of unity was drawing people that God was dealing with. And they were coming and getting saved because they could see that is God. That's what I want. Somebody say amen. God was adding the members. They weren't out practicing a membership drive. They were practicing following Jesus and that unity of following Jesus and God was just adding the members in. Let me say that the sign of unity isn't a social script for how to identify with people. I just get so weary reading in the Gospel of Facebook how Christians, I mean, are not just spending tremendous time in conferences and 
manuals and books and manifestos and uh, uh, teachings about how to connect with people and how for crying out loud, it, doesn't it seem a little obnoxious that, it, you know, we don't know how to connect with people as though knowing how to connect with people is what gets them saved? If connecting with people got them saved, then the local crack house would be having revival. Are you listening to me? The whorehouse would be having revival. You know, the, 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 uh, uh, every other kind of place where people unify around what, what their flesh loves and wants to do, they'd be having revival. Human unity does not bring revival. And so for us to be dwelling on some social prescription, some social script of how we should present ourselves and how we should talk so that we can identify with people and think that this is what is going to make help God. It's going to help God get people to want to join his church. I'm telling you, the sign of unity, hallelujah, the sign of unity, why? Because the sign of unity begins with unity with Jesus, Amen. not unity with society. In fact, it's all about, it begins and ends with unity with Jesus. The more Christians will organize around unity with Jesus, the more the unsaved who are looking for Jesus will come and join them. But the more we pander to the world and try to say, we love you, we connect with you, the more they're going to say, you know what, I'm not buying it, I'm not buying. People don't like to be chased and, you know, how many of you wished you had a job that made you go door to door and sell stuff? I feel bad for them when they come to my front door. I think, oh Lord, help this person get a better job. You know, I would hate that job. The rejection, because people don't like other people just coming up and saying, hey, join us. Hallelujah. The sign of unity. Philippians 4.3, this is powerful. Paul writes, Endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. Work at, endeavor to maintain, to keep, endeavor to keep the unity of the Spirit. You can't build the sign of unity. You must keep the sign of unity. It doesn't say build it, it says keep it. Because God built it. You keep it. It flows from the Holy Spirit. The sign of unity is not formed by the agendas of people. You don't create it. You join it. So unity is something that we joined. We didn't build it. Glory to God. Um, and I want to close with this thought. No matter what church you belong to, the sign of unity is every Christian's overarching rule that they must be measured by and live by. Whether you're a Roman Catholic, a Presbyterian, whether you're some Pentecostal denomination or evangelical, whether you're liturgical or independent, it matters not what those labels are. Whatever someone who truly believes in Jesus and the Holy Spirit has brought the new birth into their life, every Christian belongs under the sign of unity. That is the overarching rule 
over our life? Are we maintaining the unity of the Spirit? All other personalities and cultural diversities must surrender to it. The church is going backwards the more it tries to identify with culture. The more we will make an about face and go back before God and get under the sign of unity, we'll find the blessing that God has commanded waiting for us. Can you say amen? amen? All right, if you want to close your Bible and stand together, we have talked about two signs this morning and we now want to pray that we will manifest these signs in our life and that is the fear of the Lord and the sign of unity.